the church and its mission. That's where we want to start with this whole class. When we talk about foundations, we want to kind of, what is the church and what is our mission? Jesus said to Peter, and you're familiar, I'm sure, with the story where, you know, Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And, you know, they talk about the various people and what they thought. But, but what about you? Who do you say I am? And, and he said, uh, Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And so Jesus turns to Peter and says, I, I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock. And this is after telling him, you know, you didn't get this on your own. You know, this was revealed to you from heaven. So you're Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. So Christ is building his church. Hell will not overcome it. And so tonight we want to look at, really want to define the church, we want to define its mission, and, and, and kind of help us see the importance of our part in the church. So, so what, is our, what is our vision? I mean, we could say it real simply. We could say, well, our vision is to build a New Testament church. The problem with saying that is, it's, I mean, if you, if you define something so broadly as that, you really haven't said anything because then the next question would be, well, what part of the New Testament are you referring to? Or how do you understand the New Testament, right? Because you might understand it this way and that would mean one thing. You might understand it that way. So while we do want to build a New Testament church and ultimately this book is the guideline for what we're building, so anything we say is ultimately correctable by this, right? While that's true, we want to at least do a, a, a part and parcel of defining what we understand that to be so that you can have clarity on what we understand that to be. Now, tonight we're not talking about the aspects of church polity and governance. There will be a class where we, we touch on that, and that's an important element. How is the church governed? Who's in charge? What happens? And why does it work that way? Those are important things. But first and foremost, we want to talk about what the church is. What is the church and what is its mission? So that's tonight as we look at it. Um, the church, and this is... This isn't necessarily the best definition. It's certainly not the only definition. It's just one that we put together that at least captures many aspects of what we think is important in the definition. The church is a local gathering of believers who are joined together, calling on the Lord in worship and prayer together, serving one another, representing Christ to the world. That just captures various elements that we see in the New Testament and puts them in one expression. So when I say the church, I am speaking not about... The eternal church, which is all the saints from all times that are in heaven and earth together. If you're a true believer, you're a part of the eternal church. Uh, and so is Paul and Peter and James. And so is your great, 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 great grandparents if they were believers, right? They're part of that eternal church and they live today. Rich, who left our local church Saturday morning, is still part of the eternal church. Okay? And, and so there's one kind of church. But I'm speaking about the church on earth, the local church. So... The church is a local gathering of believers who are joined together, calling on the Lord in worship and prayer together, serving one another, representing Christ to the world. So I want to just break that down. First thing, the church is a local gathering of believers. The fact is that every New Testament letter was written either to local churches, to a, you know, a particular local church or group of churches, or to leaders of local churches. So there's no concept of Christianity in the New Testament apart from vital connection to a local church. 
Okay? No concept of Christianity in the New Testament apart from vital connection to a local church. The Greek word translated church is ekklesia. It's found 110 10 times in the New Testament. Only 17 of those references are to the universal church, the eternal church. The other 93 references concern the local church. Now, there might be a couple that are up for debate. I'll grant you that. But those are pretty close numbers one way or the other. The Bible talks a lot about the local church. Um, Wayne Mack and David Swavely in their book on life in the Father's house wrote, the Bible clearly commands every believer to be deeply involved in the lives of other believers. Lives of other believers. The primary context in which God wants this involvement to take place is the local body of believers. And so the commitment called for is also a commitment to the church. We, also must, we must also commit ourselves to a local or visible group of God's people. The New Testament does not contain even a hint of someone who was truly saved but not a part of a local church. Now, I'm emphasizing something for a reason. And, and when I do that, people are often quick to point out that, well, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And I'm not going to dispute that point. But that's kind of like saying you don't have to be in the water to be a fish. That's true. You do not have to be in the water to be a fish. If, 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 if you take a fish and you take it out of the water, it doesn't cease to be a fish. Right? It's still a fish. It's not in the water, but it's still a fish. Now, granted, if you leave it out of the water for long, it's not going to be a very healthy fish, right? It's going to be a very unhealthy fish. And pretty soon, if you keep it out of the water a long time, it might well be a dead fish. You know, the church is not a meeting. It's not a building. It consists of people being joined together. Oftentimes, people will acknowledge that they recognize that. But they arrive as soon as the meeting starts to leave the moment it's done. And they don't want to have anything to do with anybody in it the rest of the week. <laughs> well, the church is more than just a meeting. Now, the meeting is an important element. I don't dismiss the importance of the meeting. It's our gathering together. But our lives are to be lived out, engaged with one another. second part of that definition the church is believers who are joined together so the church is a local gathering of believers the church is believers who are joined together bruce milne wrote biblical religion is inescapably corporate scripture knows nothing of solitary religion and paul writes something to that effect in a quite different way of saying it in ephesians two nineteen. consequently you are no longer foreigners, and I think this is 19 through 22, but you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. No, no, the language. You're not foreigners and aliens. He's speaking to the Gentile believers who at one time were considered not part of this nation called Israel. You're no longer foreigners. You're no longer outside the community of God's people. You're no longer aliens, but you're fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's, and note this word, household. Members of God's household. I mean, the, the terms that God chooses to use to describe His church are really quite intimate terms. Members of God's household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is 
And note this phrase, joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together, joined together, built together, joined together, built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So you've got this picture of a building with the members being stones or bricks, if you will. Now, there's a significant difference between a building. I happen to like brick buildings. I I like brick buildings. And and therefore, the first Methodist downtown, I just love that building. You know, I mean, it's just I love red brick. I love nice architecture and architecture. And I like church buildings in particular. I just think they're cool. And so that's one really cool building, right? Now, if, if you just took all those bricks and threw them in a field somewhere, that wouldn't be all that cool. In fact, I'd argue that it'd really look like a trash heap, right? What a difference it makes for those bricks to be joined together, together in some organized fashion for a purpose versus just being strewn in a field. So while you can be a Christian and be a brick, I mean, for the sake of discussion here, what kind of brick are you? What, what usefulness is your life serving if you're not joined together in God's family? There's something supernatural that happens as we're joined together. And, you know, a number of you commented on how you've been affected by a number of things here. But one of the things that's affected me when I first came here is the love and the friendliness of the people in the congregation. The way people reach out. And I, I came here just like you, looking for a church family. I'd moved into the area. We had been looking for a couple of months. A friend of mine back home in St. Louis had said, Hey, I heard that there's this church that got planted over in St. Petersburg. Is that anywhere near you? And we were in at least a house in Tampa. I said, Yeah, I wish I had at least a house about 50 minutes away. But sure, that's near. We'll go, we'll go check it out. And we went and checked it out. And I mean, I still remember being greeted that first Sunday. I still remember the encounter. We said, That's where we're going. And then after our year of lease was up, you know, we were able to buy a house down here. But we just fell in love because of the friendliness. But those kinds of things don't happen because of one person. They happen because of a multitude of people. The kind of care that you're experiencing. Well, there's no one of us that could do that kind of care. But together we can accomplish so much more and affect people in such a greater way. Joined together, built together. Ephesians 4.16 uses a different, you know, in, in Ephesians 2, Paul's using a building paradigm. Now he switches it to a body paradigm in chapter 4. From him, speaking of Jesus, the whole body joined and held together. So the same language, joined and held together, different paradigm, by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So now, instead of a building, it's a body. And, and so we're joined together. Now, Imagine, and I I do not mean to terrorize anybody, and and that is not my goal here, but sometimes there is a place for graphic to help us get a point, and so that's what I'm doing. (laughs) Imagine with me that you're going through Crescent Lake Park or wherever you like to walk, and you're just moseying along, and you just happen to notice as you're moseying along, maybe you're jogging, maybe you're walking, oh, there's a hand, isn't that interesting, and you just kind of keep going. And you go a little further and go, oh, look at that leg. Isn't that fascinating? And you just kind of keep going. Well, of course you don't just keep going, do you? And you don't just kind of keep going. You scream. <laughs> you yell. You call 911. Why? Because there's a problem if there's a hand and it's not attached to a body. There's a problem if there's a leg and it's not attached to a that, That's problematic. Right? That would startle any of us. And Paul is speaking of each of us being a part of a body. Joined together. Built together. 
And yet we meet Christians all the time. I mean, if you're like me, I do. And I imagine you do. They'll say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, where do you where do you go to church? Well, I don't really go to church. Now, I get it because sometimes if you dig behind that, well, I've been hurt. I've been this and been that. And I understand that. I get that. But it's not entirely their fault all the time. Some of the fault can be laid at the steps of the church. I, I, I really do get that. But that doesn't make it healthy. You know, there's probably a good reason why that hand's sitting there, right? But that doesn't make it good. And, and it's got to be rejoined or we're going to have a problem real quick. And so, God has designed us to be a part of something that's bigger than just ourselves. G.W. Kirby. <laughs> I mean, these, these quotes are redundant, I realize, but, but just other people in the body of Christ. He says, it's necessary to stress that the New Testament never countenances the possibility of a believer living his Christian life apart from the context of the local church. In fact, in the New Testament, this may sound, in our culture, it seems crazy, but in the New Testament, the way you would, the, 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 the greatest threat you could give somebody was that they'd be removed from the church. Well, these days, people would say, I don't care. Because they don't see any value in it. Because they're so blinded. You know, they just say, oh, okay, whatever. I'll just go somewhere else. Or, what, you know, I don't know. I won't go somewhere. They don't see and understand the value. They don't see that as discipline. They don't comprehend the danger that that leaves them in. <clears throat> yeah, imagine saying to a fish, if you don't straighten up, we're taking you out of the water for, like, good. <laughs> I'll straighten up, right? I mean, if it could think, <laughs> it would straighten up. It knows that's a problem. <clears throat> So the church is believers who are joined together. The church is believers who are calling on the Lord in worship and prayer together. Right after the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2, here is what we read in verse 42. Right after they're converted, this, this multitude, and it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. They're calling on the Lord in prayer. They're calling on the Lord in prayer. And in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, Paul writes, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. We're called together with all those who call on the name of the Lord. The church is a company of people who call on the name of the Lord. We're to be a worshiping community, a f- community that calls on God, a praying community. We cry out to God together. We pray together. We engage the Lord together. Fourthly, <clears throat> the church is believers who are serving one another. Galatians 5.13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. We're called to be free. But not free to indulge the flesh, but rather free to serve one another humbly in love. What a verse, huh? Serve one another humbly in love. Romans 12.10 Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Christ came to serve and he wants that his followers be noted because of their love one for another. 
That's, that's most evident when we position ourselves to serve one another in love. Probably familiar with these verses, Philippians 2. They're, they're, they're really they're the kinds of verses you can build a life on. Beginning in verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. This humility, this service of one another, this laying down our lives, this humbling ourselves before others. It's not like joining a club that's kind of there for our own benefit. You know, and clubs are fine. Don't get me wrong. You might join clubs. There's benefit in joining some clubs, right? You might join them for a variety of reasons. But you don't generally go join a club to benefit everybody but yourself in some sense. And I get that. The church isn't that. But there's this sense in which we're called to come to make ourselves a servant. That's not generally the kind of club we're going to go join, is it? But it's the Savior who calls us to it. I'm coming to serve. As we talked about this morning, I'm coming because He's Lord of heaven and earth and He bids me come. And I must obey. I must obey. Um, <clears throat> Fifthly, the church is believers representing Christ to the world. The church is believers representing Christ to the world. So our, our coming together as a body is a witness to the community around us. It's a testimony to the community around us. We can, and I'm not taking away from your individual witness here. I'm very much in support of your individual witness. We should all be sharing Christ and living lives that are a testimony. But let's be honest. The witness of my life, the witness of your life, the witness of your life, the witness of your life, and so on and so forth, the witness going on at commission down on that campus is much stronger when it's compounded by the one another's that are involved than just one individual. I mean, Jennifer, you shared earlier how, you know, when you found commission in this group, you suddenly realize, hey, I don't have to just go off to a Christian college somewhere. I can stay here because there's an impact that can be had because I've got people supporting me and I'm supporting them and Together, we're affecting this campus, right? It affects things. So there's something about our corporate witness, and that wouldn't be happening if we together weren't able to accomplish. You know, it was years that we prayed at Gulf Coast, and we I remember preaching through Matthew's gospel, running into that text that asked the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest field. And we prayed right there as a church that the Lord would, would send Send us, give us evangelists to send into the harvest field, that he would send from our midst evangelists into the harvest field, that we would be able to reach the campus there at USF St. Pete. And that happened years before it actually came about. We're praying and asking God for that as a church. And all of a sudden, you know, Ryan Carver just kind of shows up. You know, Ryan, yeah, yeah, go surfing, you know. What are you doing? Well, just working and surfing, you know, and doing the thing. But he's sharing Jesus with everybody he can, you know. And you start watching him and you go, he's not just a dude that's out surfing. He's focused on something. 
And he's disciplined in his life as much as he tries to make it look otherwise, right? And so, and, and so you begin to engage and you go, okay, there's, the Lord's doing something there. And you just watch and you suddenly realize, okay, the Lord could use this guy. He is maybe that evangelist. And the next thing you know, we say, okay, we, it's a step of faith, but I think we've got the funds that we can fund putting him down there. And the whole first year was just pretty much groundwork. I mean, he reached out, but it was, you know, him reaching out and groundwork to get this thing rolling. And he's like, well, Lord, you know what you're doing. I mean, you know, and, but then the next thing you know, it starts to bear fruit and it's reaching people. We can, no individual could do that. But that's what we accomplish together. We represent Christ to the world. First Thessalonians 1. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. Paul's writing to the Thessalonians. They're a young church at this point. Paul had been there and gotten the hoodah beaten out of him. And, and so the, the believers had gathered together and and so they're suffering because the same persecution that God Paul is now persecuting them. And, and so they're suffering, but they're imitating Paul. They're enduring that suffering. And he says, in spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out. From you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. So, there's a message, the gospel, that was ringing out from them. But but notice that the message was ringing out from them because, first and foremost, they became a model of the message. They were living the message they were proclaiming. And when we as a church come together and live the message we proclaim, it it gives some substance to it. People can come in and go, okay, that, that... They are somebody's disciples who's teaching them something other than what I've been learning because they are truly loving one another. They're laying down their lives. And of course, John 13, you're familiar, I'm sure, with this verse, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. For by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Love one for another. Now... I don't know if you've noticed, but there is a lot of emphasis, both in the teaching of Jesus and in the New Testament, on these things. There's a lot of emphasis on the command to love one another. It, it, it presumes, I think, the, the fact that it's, Jesus keeps coming back to it, it seems to presume that we aren't going to get it with just one shot. It seems to presume that at times love's going to be difficult and if it hasn't been pounded into our heads, we're going to think maybe there's some other alternative, you know. Well, we tried love. Let's do this other thing, right? I mean, <clears throat> it just keeps coming back to it. And then you get into Paul and not only do we have love one another, it's forgive one another, which he keeps talking about forgiving one another. And I don't know about you, but the last time I forgave somebody, they had done something against me. That's why I had to forgive them. And forgive. And then he says, bear with one another. Now, generally, I don't bear with people I'm getting along with. I bear with people that I'm having difficulty with. They offend me. They're maybe not polite. Maybe, you know, there's a variety of reasons. But I have to bear and endure. These are commands that are given us. And they involve one another's. Uh, you know, sometimes people will say, I, I, I'm a Christian. I just, I, I, re, I do the Bible. I'm living out of the Bible. I'm just not really want to be involved in a church. I, 
help me understand how I can live out the Bible and not be involved in a church. Because who am I forgiving? Who am I bearing with? Maybe myself. And, I, you know, in my case, that would be difficult. I understand. But, you know, most of us quite get along with ourselves, you know. But who, who, who is it that I have to endure? Where do I have to practice the command of love? There's something about the church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and by the way, if you hang out here much, you're going to find out that I like this guy, okay? And um, I'm just a Bonhoeffer fan. I, I, I could read Bonhoeffer every day and be happy. I mean, just, uh, he just he's, was brilliant. And he died at the age of 39, and so I often think, man, what have I done? I'm way past that, but, you know, here's this guy. So, <clears throat> but Bonhoeffer wrote, <clears throat> Only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight. Begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. The sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. A community which cannot bear and cannot survive such a crisis, which insists upon keeping its illusion when it should be shattered permanently, loses in that moment the promise of Christian community. Now, let me break that down for you. It kind of comes out of his German language and, and all of that. But he was talking in context about how oftentimes we have this wonderful idea of what Christian fellowship is like. I've had it before, so I'm familiar with it. I used to live in this grand illusion of what what fellowship was. And we think, you know, I'm looking for... And you'll hear it. And you hear, don't young people don't hear me wrong. I love young people. I've got four of them myself. They're my kids, and I love young people. And I was once one. It's hard to believe. Uh, but but sometimes young Christians who get really fired up about some things can go off on this thing, and you'll hear them, and, and, and they they all hang together. But they, they they want this kind of a I'm looking for real fellowship. I'm, I'm wanting biblical fellowship. And so the church I'm a part of, we don't have that in this church. And I, I can't find it anywhere. So we've got just me and my friends get together and we're having real biblical fellowship. Well, they have an idea of biblical fellowship and I'm commend them to continue to pursue that idea. And it may take them 10 or 12 years before their friends start irritating them and they can finally get to some biblical fellowship. <laughs> but let me assure you that You and your friends aren't practicing biblical fellowship if it's just you and your friends. I'm all for your friends. I have friends. I like friends. Friends are good. That's my point. (laughs) Keep hanging with your friends. But the church isn't about just that kind of warm feeling you have when you're with with people just like yourself. Because church is about that, yes, and also with the people that aren't just like you. In fact, the ones that are so different than you that it has to. You have to, in order to relate to them, do what Jesus did, humble himself. I mean, if you think about it, think of the person you've had the most difficulty with in your life. Okay? And for some of you, that's a long list, right? Because, you know, if you've been around as long as I have, you think, okay, I've got, you know, which one do I pick, right? If you're young, okay, so you've got a few to pick from. But, but pick one. I don't care which one, really. Just pick somebody you've had difficulty with. Now, the differences between you and them. Think about the differences. Now, let's just compare the differences, say, between you and Jesus before you were saved. (laughs) Well, that's vastly more. (laughs) In case you're not aware theologically, I'll I'll help you out. You and Jesus had vastly more differences. He was like God, okay? And and so, you're a sinner, can't stand in his presence without, like, being burned. And so, he had mercy. He humbled himself. He became a man. And so, 
in, in, in fellowship, true biblical fellowship, we're called to get rid of the disillusionment that is all this wonderful feeling about what fellowship is and engage life with people that are real Christians that we're to walk out the gospel with, that we're called to walk out the gospel with, that we're advancing the gospel with. Now, it does have to be the gospel. It's, it's not just, we're not just hanging out because, well, we're going we're gonna to work out our differences regardless, but I mean, it, it does have to be centered in Christ, right? But within that, there are going to be times when it's going to be harder and we have to press through the idea of fellowship into what Bonhoeffer refers to as the promise of Christian community, which is beyond this idea, but it's a reality that, that engages difficulties with one another. In other words, let me say it simply this way. There's nothing supernatural about hanging out with people you like and prefer. There's nothing supernatural about staying with a small group of close friends who share most things in common with you. The church, the communion of the saints, is about people who are very different but have been joined in Christ. This and this alone will demonstrate something unique to the world. I'm not suggesting that we forsake those that we enjoy being around. I'm suggesting that we broaden our circle of relationships to Christ's community. And we'll be amazed at the riches of grace found in that. Amen? Got a few more minutes, and I want to talk about the church and its mission. It's kind of funny. Where's that? Maybe I've got it here. Uh (laughs) Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. Psalm 127.1. What house is the Lord building? We read it at the beginning tonight, right? The church. That's what he's building. Now, we might like to think he should have picked something else to build. I mean, sometimes our experiences tell us maybe, you know, Lord has a bad idea. But that's what he's building. Unless we want to labor in vain, we need to orient our lives toward the same end as Jesus Christ. By the way, it's usually not good to insult somebody's girlfriend, so I just recommend before speaking badly about his church, you know, just kind of reel it in. It's his bride, right? And so we, we, we must think of that. The only thing we have instructions for building in the New Testament is the local church. That's what he gave us instructions about. So we must build that. We must get involved in that. Um, building, be building people into local gatherings of believers who are joined together in love as family, worshiping together, serving one another, representing Christ to the world. And we do that through gospel sharing and witnessing and, and leading people to Christ. So what is the mission of the church? Well, it's spelled out most clearly in Matthew 28. I think all believers would agree that Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission is certainly defines for us the mission of the church at some great level. And it says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Jesus talking, not me, Jerry. Um, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So what's the mission? I mean, there's several things in there. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey. 
Making disciples is the Great Commission. Now, I think there's been some confusion over what the Great Commission is for a lot of years because people reference it and don't specifically go and look at it and think about what it's saying. The Great Commission is about disciple-making, not decision-getting. Now, let me, let me distinguish here for just a moment. I'm not opposed to decisions. I'm not saying we shouldn't, there shouldn't be decisions. But that the Great Commission is disciple-making, not decision-getting. See, oftentimes, we think that the Great Commission is we need to go and, and preach Jesus and either get a hand raised, get people to come for whatever method we have, fill out a card, whatever it is, have them come to a prayer room and pray. It doesn't matter. But to get that decision, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not critiquing the way they get the decision, I'm just, however that is, we get that decision, and then we're going to go on to the next group of people, the next city, the next whatever, and continue getting decisions. And, and the effect of thinking that way is we go into the world and we, we, we're pursuing making bricks. And we find, oh, we made a brick and we throw it behind us into the field. And we go on and we make another brick and we throw it behind us into the field. And we go on and we make another brick and we throw it behind us and another brick and we throw it behind and another brick and we throw it behind us. And then next thing you know, you turn around and look back, what do you have? A field strewn with bricks, right? Remember what we were talking about earlier? That's not exactly the goal, right? You Think of the building. They're much more useful knit into something. Disciple-making is different. When Arne explains the disciple-making goal of the Great Commission as follows, to proclaim Jesus Christ as God and Savior, and to persuade persons to become responsible members of His church. That works. Our goal is not making bricks. Oh, really, truthfully, the only one who can make bricks is God. We can't make bricks. We can't make believers. We, we can preach the gospel. The only one who can put faith in the hearts of people and, and allow it to take root and bear fruit is the Lord. When He shines light in the heart. When He says, let there be light. And there was light. When He says, come forth. And the next thing you know, they're standing at the front of the tomb and says, somebody get these stinking clothes off me, Right? He makes believers. But our role is to see bricks built into the structure that God can inhabit. He makes the bricks. We help knit them together in a cooperation with Him. The church is not an accumulation of bricks strewn across a brickyard, but the church is a spiritual building. Now, the terminology that we often use betrays our false concept of the Great Commission. And sometimes people relate the success of missions. They're really quick to want to talk about the numbers of decisions that were made last week, last year, last, you know, you name it. I loved this morning, actually, as we heard from Dinesh from India. What did he talk about? Since I was here a year ago that we've planted 20 more churches. 20 more churches. What are churches? They're places where people are being discipled. People are being discipled. Now, we understand that decisions are happening in and around those churches and people are coming in. But the fact that there are churches will do far more than a crusade that goes in and gets decisions and leaves if there aren't churches there to make disciples. Thank God for the crusade, but we've got to have churches that are making disciples. Um, rather than counting decisions to evaluate success, my, I think maybe we should consider something like how many disciples are being, do we see bearing fruit? 
And how many disciples are becoming parts of churches and reaching out to others? Now I want to talk briefly about the power of the church. And we're going to talk about this more in another lesson. But I think it's important to mention here that we cannot accomplish the mission apart from the ongoing empowering of the Holy Spirit. It's not like we just, okay, God's part, our part, let's go do our part. Well, it's a little harder than that. It's an impossible mission apart from the empowering of the Spirit. He's got to be the one ultimately doing the work. We are a God-dependent people, and that dependency is expressed foremost in prayer. Paul Totkus, I think is how he says his name, says, A brief survey of the early church's life of prayer demonstrates that we cannot survive without prayer. Devotion to prayer turns common people into uncommon servants of God. We want to be seeking the Lord in prayer. We want to be calling out to Him, relying, dependent upon Him. We read in the book of Acts, chapter 1, that the disciples were told to wait for the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And so we read later in the same chapter, they all joined together constantly in prayer. And it didn't stop there. They constantly relied on the power of the Spirit for all they did. They were God-dependent. They were, as we read earlier in Acts 2.42 and 46, devoted to prayer. Devoted to prayer. They were coming together to pray. And so, we can talk about the church, and we can talk about the mission, but I, I don't want to get away from that without saying, we must be talking to God about the church and about the mission. In fact, you know, we've, we talked earlier about the, the vital need for love one another and forgiving one another. If Look at Paul's prayers in the New Testament. You know what you're going to discover that he prayed a lot about? He prayed a lot about the church learning how to love one another. So if we ever want to live out what we described as the church, we better be praying for one another that we live it out. Paul seemed to think that was important. <laughs> or why would he waste his time doing it? He, he, he thought it was very important that we pray to that end. It was one of his primary prayer requests. And so we want to pray to that end. Amen. Well, I'm done, but I do want to just kind of briefly describe our mission statement. I think that uh, might be in your notes there. Um, we, we, we have a mission statement that is building a faithful gospel witness for this generation and the next. Is that on your notes at the very back of them? No? Okay. Well, it's on the sign out front. You see it? It's on the sign. It's, it's on your bulletin every week. Sorry. Um, but building a faithful gospel witness for this generation and the next. Now, there's a lot in that. I mean, but, but in short. Christ is building His church. We want to be building the church. What is it? It's a faithful gospel witness. It better be faithful to the gospel, right? I mean, that's first and foremost. We want to be faithful to the gospel. And by doing that, we'll be a witness. See, a church can be a witness for a lot of things. But there's only really one thing that we're called to be a witness to, and that's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of other things that might be nice, but there's one thing that is central and must remain central, and that is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to be that faithful gospel witness for this generation and the next. Which, by the way, that element of our mission defines why we're at USF St. Pete. We're there because, well, what's our mission? This generation and the next. Well, we can't just leave them for the world. We have to go after and engage and encounter and reach out to. 
And it's why we do break out in children's ministry and teach the gospel, because it's this generation and the next. Faithful gospel witness. We don't just have these kids over here, you know, sure they do a craft, but it's all gospel-centered. We, we actually spend quite a bit of time dialoguing through curriculum and how's that curriculum working and are they getting the gospel and are they understanding the gospel? There's a gospel coming forth clear because we want to be a faithful gospel witness for this generation and the next. So that's, that's our mission statement. Our, our values are how we pursue that mission. And, and so we, we describe our values three simple statements. Love the gospel, live the gospel, advance the gospel. Now, first let me briefly describe the gospel. Now, we could spend a long time on the gospel. I could spend hours, but I've got a brief way of describing the gospel. The gospel is God's revelation of himself in Jesus Christ. That's the shortest way I know to describe the gospel. I mean, I guess one is shorter. Jesus, okay? But, but God's revelation of himself in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And the gospel is at the center and must be at the center of our lives. So we want to love the gospel. Everything the church stands for grows out of the gospel. It's the account of the redemption that was achieved by the life and work of Jesus. It's the focal point of all of scripture. It's the reason for our hope. The gospel must always be loved and cherished, never neglected. We must always stay focused on the gospel because that's where life is found. It is the bread of life. He is the bread of life. But we don't stop there because if we truly love the gospel, what's the highest form of flattery? Emulation. Imitation or emulation, depending on how you hear it. Highest form of flattery. In other words, if I love the gospel, then I need to imitate it. I need to live the gospel. I need to, if I love the Savior, and I say, oh, isn't that great how he was humble? Well, then I need to be humble. Isn't that great how he laid down his life? Then I need to follow him and lay down my life. I need to live out the gospel. I need to have Christ formed in me. Amen? So love the gospel, live the gospel. And the gospel is to bear fruit in us. We're to be conformed to the image of the central character of the gospel story, Jesus Christ. Transformed by his power. Study the scriptures, grow in our knowledge of God. Shape every aspect of who we are, how we think, what we do. It's what living for the gospel is. That's what it means to, to render worship to God with the whole of our life that we spoke about this morning. And then thirdly, to advance the gospel. So love the gospel, live the gospel, advance the gospel. You might say it's awfully redundant, the gospel thing. Well, I'm, it's, I'm a simple person. I couldn't come up with anything else. So no, <laughs> love the gospel, live the gospel, advance the gospel. The, the gospel is the story of God, the Redeemer, who seeks and saves the lost. Well, he doesn't stop when he finds you. You're not the only lost person, in case you weren't aware, right? He he saved you to save others. He called you to himself. Now you belong to him. And now he sends you to others that he wants to find. And so we're to advance the gospel. We do that through prayer, through gospel sharing, communicating the story to others, through sacrificial living and giving in order to see the gospel reach others. So those values help us fulfill the mission of being a faithful gospel witness for this generation and the next. But in order to be that faithful gospel witness, we have to love the gospel. We have to live the gospel. We have to advance the gospel. And that living the gospel is why is, is that place where we, we, we forgive one another, bear with one another, love one another, reach out to that person. I pray it's why you were greeted by somebody when you came in the church and they engaged you and, and, and wanted to get to know you because they want to live out the gospel with others. Amen. Well, I'm done with this part, but I want to just open it up now.